Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by John Citron, one of the managers on the elite-rated JP Morgan Emerging Markets Trust. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thanks, great to be here. Um, let's start with the trust. It's um, 30 years old this year. Obviously, you have been managing the trust for, for the entire tenure, but could you maybe tell us about some of the biggest changes to investing in emerging markets over the past few decades, you know, the, the likes of the countries, the sectors, or, or any other changes that you may have, we may have seen? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, the short answer is that the opportunity set has expanded a, a lot over the past decade. Um, and the two biggest changes are that it includes a lot more in the technology sector and a lot more in China. Uh, and, and the easiest way to see that is if you look at the 10 largest companies in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is the index for the fund, and you look today versus a decade ago, uh, well, firstly, only three of the names are the same, uh, Samsung, TSMC, and, and Vale. Um, that, that in itself tells you, I guess, a lot has happened, that only three names managed to survive in the top 10 for a decade. Uh, and then if you look at where we are today versus then, uh, 10 years ago, you had four commodity stocks, two telecom stocks, uh, and, and today there, there are no, com- no telecom stocks and only uh, well, one commodity stock, um, uh, Vale. Uh, and instead, you have a lot of internet stocks. Really, you have um, you know the likes of Tencent, um, Meituan, Alibaba, uh, and, and so on. Uh, you have other tech type stocks like uh, Infosys. Um, and so it's a lot more technology, a lot less commodities. Uh, and like I say, there's been there's been a lot of churn. Uh, and if you look at the country composition of the index, you kind of see a similar tale. So China and Hong Kong have, have doubled their weight from from twenty percent to nearly forty percent, while while Latin America and, and emerging Europe have half their weight from kind of close to half the index down down closer to 20%. So so things things keep changing and I, I think when we look forward we see we see more changes from here you see uh quite a powerful healthcare sector starting to emerge uh with, within um both India China and, and other places too we're seeing a new breed of financial technology companies start to appear and and, and so on. So uh, I I think as well if you if you just kind of put it back to the trust that the portfolio has shifted over time reflect some of these trends and, and I'm sure we'll get to it later but I, I would also like to to say that although although it reflects these trends we, we also find a lot of idiosyncratic opportunities that reflect the bottom-up uh, opportunities that we see and so we have had important investments in places like Argentina and Belarus and Indonesia and so on and so forth so so the, the universe shifts and more China more technology and we, we shifted to some extent but we're also kind of always keeping an eye out for for any gems we can find looking more broadly. You mentioned tech there, the sort of the rise of tech at the expense of maybe commodities, for example. Sort of segues into my next question because obviously the team does believe that emerging markets are becoming more like developed markets. Could you maybe expand a bit more on that? And are the opportunities the same? And you know, could there even become a point where there are no emerging markets? Uh, more, more like developed. I, I think that's that's kind of partly true. Um, I, I would draw a contrast, I guess, between countries through the prism of, of the corporate sector and investment and, and com- countries through the prism of, of the macroeconomic standpoint. Um, so I think, you know, when it comes to investment, we've always held the view that in investing in emerging markets doesn't require a different skill set to investing in developed markets. The things that you need to succeed, you know, calmness, patience, forensic analysis are, are the same. And the things that cause you to, to make mistakes, behavioral biases, over-optimism, they're also the same too. I mean, investing in that sense is it's just investing. Uh, but when, when you look at the corporate sector, I think what has changed is that the best companies in emerging markets are now clearly comparable to the best companies in developed markets from a corporate quality perspective in a way which wasn't necessarily always true, I guess, if you went back further in time. Um, 
In some cases, that's because they are genuinely global businesses. So to take an obvious example, the, the biggest uh, one of the biggest holdings in our in our funds and a big big part of the, the emerging markets world is Taiwan Semiconductor, which is now the world's largest manufacturer of semiconductor chips. And in terms of technology and productivity, it's it's kind of moved ahead of Intel um, to take the the lead in the global semiconductor industry. But e- even for domestic businesses, I think we see equivalent or higher quality in some areas. So the best banks in emerging markets like Capitec, Bank Central Asia, HDFC Bank, they offer a customer experience, you know, a set of technologies. Um, and also financial metrics, return on assets, and so on, uh, which are better than most or many de- developed market banks. Um, and then I think if you look in the tech world again, in, in the internet side, companies like Tencent, C Limited, you know, they're, they're driven by art- artificial intelligence algorithms that are, again are kind of equal to to ahead of what's going on in Silicon Valley. So, so in other words, you, I think you know, we think that you don't have to sacrifice corporate quality when investing in emerging market companies. Um, but when it comes to the economies themselves, I think our view is that you know, many of these are going to be emerging markets for a long time in the sense that incomes will remain low, government and legal systems are, you know, in, in some cases are, are more de- developed, but in other cases are less developed and in, in you know, some cases will we'll never reach kind of Western developed norms. And so I think that's that slow evolution at the macro level is is something we understand, but it's something we think creates a lot of corporate level opportunity. And, and so, you know, where you're able to mix these kind of best in class uh, management teams and corporate quality with some of these very long duration kind of income growth and, and slow development opportunities, that's, that's a kind of great standpoint from which we can succeed. Okay. Um, just looking at the, the portfolio itself, I mean, the average company held in the portfolio has been there for like 10 years. And um, that's obviously, you know, in a world where maybe market cycles are perceived in different sort of lengths and, you know, perhaps companies are held for less time than they were in the past. Could you could you maybe talk us through that? And also, what was the longest standing stock in the portfolio and why has it been such a good investment for so long? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I've been a more recent addition to, to managing the trust and it's been managed um, since, since uh, 1994, I think, by Austin Forry, uh, who uh, I guess is a really unique investor in terms of how long he does hold companies and how how low the turnover of the product is. And I think that's been a, a really core part of, of the success. Um, and so if you look at the longest standing holdings, you have a number of stocks that have been continuous, continuously held in the fund since the 1990s. Uh, and those would include names like uh, Walmex, HDFC and, and TSMC. So I think of those, the longest standing is Walmex, which has been owned continuously since 1994. Uh, and in that time, the, the stock's up more than 10 times in sterling terms, which is more than double the return delivered by the index. Um, I think, you know, so Walmart, just, just as basic facts, is Walmart's uh, Mexican subsidiary. Uh, and I think in a way it typifies what makes for a, a successful long-term investment, because on the one hand, the investment case is, is really entirely unchanged versus 30 years ago. So the basics of it are that you have a food retail industry in Mexico that you know, back then was almost entirely informal, but today is is still relatively uh, informal. And so there's this opportunity to consolidate market share. Um, and the key to capturing that opportunity remains the same, which is about offering, you know, everyday low prices to customers on a wide variety of goods. So the, the, the setup hasn't really changed yet. The companies obviously had to evolve and the way it delivers its value proposition to the customer has evolved along with that. So, you know, while the, the, the setup and the, the basic principles are, are unchanged. The, you now have e-commerce being the fastest area of growth for the company. Uh, Walmart is 
you know, culturally changed a lot and has now become one of the kind of global leaders on um, on issues like environmental, social and governance, uh, which obviously, again, back in, in 1994 was was less of a, a priority. And it has a you know an incredibly robust set of targets on its supply chain in terms of sustainable sourcing, which we really benchmark a lot of other companies, both in emerging markets and, and globally by. So, yeah, I th- that, that's probably the longest standing one. And I, I think we still see a a pretty good outlook there in terms of you know the industry growth and the company's ability to take advantage of it um, over over the next few years. And at the other end of the scale, what's your most recent investment, and what's the attraction of that specifically? Well, as, as you noted, uh, turnover is pretty low, but I think you are in luck. Um, so we we did uh, we did add uh, one name uh, this year, I think. Um, so there was a new name added in May, uh, which was a Taiwanese stock called called Advantech. Um, probably worth noting that I think it's a good example of the kind of business we would like to own, particularly in, in the trust, um, because it is a smaller and, and less liquid name. Um, and obviously, uh, that having having the closed end structure enables us to, to invest in that, in that kind of business. It's, it's not necessarily a small business. It's not hyper-liquid. It's just kind of maybe uh, it, it's, it allows for a slightly different profile of investments. And this is a great example because... Uh, what does Advantec do? Well, it's it's the world's leading manufacturer of industrial PCs. Uh, so an industrial PC is any computer that's used in a non-consumer or office application. So it's everything from medical devices to factory equipment to points of sale kiosks in shops, um, all the computers needed to control smart traffic lights or street lighting systems, all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and what do we like about the business? Well, it's a, it's a clear leader. Uh, its market share is multiples that of the next largest player, and it spends more than half of the whole industry's research and development budget. Um, it has exceptional returns, uh, returns on capital above 20%. It has a consistent net cash balance sheet and uh, has a long track record of paying out uh, very uh, large amounts of earnings as dividends. And, and so you have this kind of great financial model, great management track record, and the industry it's in is is really you know got a very long runway, long duration ahead of it, given um, you only really see more compute power being added to uh, devices around the world and, and computers appearing in all sorts of applications where they didn't appear before. Um, so we yeah, we view a good outlook there and it's a business we've been interested in and um, there was a, a small sell-off in the market unrelated to, to the business itself that provided a good opportunity to, to start a position. Um, and just moving on, you, you sort of touched on this a bit earlier. Um, many emerging market funds are now dominated by Asian companies and you know, essentially, is Asia now the only real story in town or other opportunities elsewhere? You mentioned the likes of LATAM and a few of those other regions. Could you maybe talk us through that as well, please? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, the, the greatest proof that there's more than just Asia and emerging markets has, has really been um, our performance over the last decade of the trust when a number of the biggest contributors have come from Latin America uh, and emerging Europe. And, uh, although the overall universe outside Asia, um, you know, the, the number of companies it contains might be a bit smaller. There's still a lot of them. And, you know, one mantra we, all, we always have is that it only takes one idea to make a difference. Because if you can find that great business, then it can, uh, you know, some of the better businesses we've had, and I'll, I'll talk about some of them now, have, have been real multi-baggers. And those can drive a lot of performance for a product. And you only need one or two of them. So, um let me talk you through some, uh, through some of those briefly. So two, two of our largest contributors, um, which remain large and important holdings, um, are headquartered in Argentina. Uh, one is Globant, uh, which is an IT services company, which uh, takes the best technical and creative talent in Latin America and uses it to build products for, for Western companies. 
so for example, the breakthrough client um, when we were first investing in the company um, was Disney. And they were very involved in building out the digital experiences in Disneyland parks. Um, so there were these bracelets that visitors uh, wear when they when they go into Disneyland to, to avoid queues and, and other things. And they, they were instrumental in, in building that product. Uh, these days, you know, it's grown a lot and it helped, it's helping businesses in all sorts of different industries solve problems. Um, and maybe worth saying as well, one of the big positions we, we also have in the trust is a, is a business called EPAM, uh, not a Latin American business, founded in Belarus, uh, which has a very similar model. It's, ba it's based on taking the best technical talent, uh, for, in this case, from Eastern Europe and, and taking it to develop market companies who, who are desperately short of high quality uh, technology developers. Uh, the, the other Argentinian name is, is Mercado Libre. Uh, it's the leading e-commerce and fintech company in Latin America. Uh, it's number one in e-commerce in Brazil, in Mexico, in Argentina. It has a PayPal type digital payments platform, which has been built on top of the e-commerce business. So yeah, th these are huge opportunities. And I mean, we don't... Um, yeah, I guess we're not huge fans of talking about performance of, of specific stocks. But I mean, in the case of Globant, you know, that, that's a business that's up well over 10 times since we first invested in it. And I think um, it's, it's just a great example of how if you can find these exceptional businesses, you only need a few of them. And, and there certainly are a few of them across Latin America, across Eastern Europe. And so they, they remain very important kind of hunting grounds for us when, when looking for new ideas. Um, we've almost got to the end uh without mentioning China too much, but just before we do, obviously there's a lot of news coming out with these recent crackdowns on investments in the likes of the after tutoring, you know, after school tutoring and other areas. Could you maybe talk us through the impact of what's happening there and what you're seeing in your perception of it, please? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely correct that the increased regulatory pressure in China has been the kind of major issue in, in our lives and in emerging markets over the past few months. Um, so maybe for those less familiar, I can give like a, a, a sentence or two of background and then talk about how it impacts our portfolio specifically. Um, so for, for much of the time, uh, or, or for, certainly for some time now, the Chinese government has been looking to increase regulation, particularly uh, of the tech industry, uh, maybe before talking about education. And the tech industry regulation has been ramping up this year, but, but frankly, I guess a lot of the issues are quite similar to those we've seen in the West. So. They're looking to tighten standards around worker rights. They're looking to ensure customer data isn't being shared too broadly when it comes to the targeting of online advertisements and so on. Um, and I think we've, we've always had the view that this kind of regulation makes sense. You, the bigger companies which constitute our investment universe are kind of pretty well positioned to deal with it. And we've been willing to own these companies through, through that noise, um, which I guess mirrors how you know, you may see US investors own, own Facebook or Google through antitrust noise and, 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 and so on. It's kind of, it's some analogy there, albeit with, with kind of local specifics. Um, the after-school tutoring thing obviously was a different thing and was, was much more uh, worrisome from, from our perspective. So um, in, in China, you have this one exam that students take, which determines which university they go to. And, and obviously parents and students take it incredibly seriously. And, and this huge tutoring industry had developed around that with uh, companies that in total had over $100 billion of market capitalization. Um, and earlier this year, the, the Chinese government effectively outlawed that industry uh, at a stroke of a pen and, and the market cap of these companies fell kind of 80 to 90% in a, in a few days. Um, you know, the rationale from the government side was that the, the burden, the stress and the, and the cost of tutoring was, was stopping families having more than one child. And this was causing long-term demographic issues. And it's always worth reminding that China moved away from its one-child policy some time ago and, and now is trying to encourage larger families. Uh, but you know, regardless of the rationale, to see the government willing to destroy this kind of very large 
uh, area of economic activity and stock market value was quite shocking. Um, we had a, a very small investment in the space, which we sold. Um, and it, you know, it is a concern. So I think you know, where, where we are now is that from a, from a portfolio perspective, we've, we've kind of always had a, a, a kind of mild underweight position to Chinese internet and, and some of the areas that are being more regulated. And that has benefited our relative performance this year. Um, we do have some holdings nonetheless, um, which, which are in, mostly in the internet area. And uh, I think our belief is that they're, as I discussed, you know, the regulatory issues are, are probably manageable in, in the long run. Um, in, the, in the end, you know, government regulation is always somewhat unknown. Um, it, it is always something you worry about, and it's something we certainly discuss a lot with our team on the ground in China. And I think, you know, ultimately, like I say, we have we run a diversified portfolio, and our best protection in China specifically is where we try and find businesses that operate a long way from the government. So, for example, we own a a business which is a produces soy sauce, um, which it sells to consumers and to restaurants. And, and you would think that selling soy sauce, hopefully, is an industry where regulators have little interest. It, it it's kind of you know, it typifies one of those idiosyncratic opportunities that we're, we're hoping to find. So I think, yeah, it's a balance. You know, I think we are more concerned than we were, particularly given what happened in, in the after-school tutoring sector. But when we look at our exposures, firstly, they're, they're not so high overall, and, and particularly not in relative terms. Um, and when we look at the businesses we hold, we, we view kind of uh, sensible, well-managed businesses we think can, can navigate this, but also a lot, a lot of businesses which hopefully are, aren't too exposed to regulation at all. That's great, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And if you'd like to learn more about the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Trust, please visit fundcaliber.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at your time of listening. <laughs>